Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today for OK Bloomer, Teach Me Sales. I'm Kelly Bloomer. And I'm Tom Bloomer. OK, Tom, you're our sales pro. In 30 words or less, can you tell us about this podcast? I'm going to try. You know us salespeople like to talk, Kelly. You sure do. All right, 30 words or less. Can you do it? Well, if you're a sales pro and you're looking to grow in your sales career, if you like good, lively sales discussion, I think this is going to be a show for you. I've walked your walk for over 30 years in sales. I've knocked on the doors and overcome the same obstacles I think you may be facing as a seller, a sales manager, and as a VP of sales. I currently help assess, build, and train high-performing media sales teams. Well, Cal? Yeah, you really went over 30 words. But I think it was good. I let's, do too. Okay, so I hope our listeners will be all set. And hey, let's let's roll up our shirt sleeves and let's let's get at it. So enjoy listening to Tom and his guests talk sales. Okay, Tom, who's the boomer we're talking to today? Well, today, Kel, you know, we're, we're kicking off our CEO and founder series, and, and you know who we're starting it off with. Yes, I do. So today we're talking to Steve Zuckerman. Uh, I work with him for a long time. You know him very well as, as well. I do. Nice, nice guy. And, and a great story. And, um, you know, for people who are familiar with Clipper, hopefully they're very excited about today's episode. For those that aren't, I, I should probably give a little bit of background information. I think that's a very good idea. So Clipper is a local regional and national direct mail advertising company. They publish close to 500 editions in over 22 states, hitting about 20 million homes every month with a beautiful full color magazine, inserts, money-saving deals, and coupons. You're going to hear today how Steve started this while at college in 1983. He's at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Do you know what you were doing in 1983, Cal? I was still in high school. Yeah, I, I remember that. And, and I had just started college and I'm, I'm flipping burgers at McDonald's. You know, I'm not thinking about my future. I'm thinking about, you know, where am I going out tonight? But not Steve. He was doing something a little bit different. Not many people are willing to go to college and try to start a business all at the same time. It's not easy. No. And, and we're going to hear about that. Steve's going to talk about the origins of the company and you know, our tagline for a long time was the best local advertising in America. Mm -hmm. And I think people are going to get a glimpse of kind of how he started that and, and where it came from. Um, but there he is. He starts this in college. He is uh, shortly thereafter. He gets joined by his partners, Ian Russo, okay. his brother, Bob Zuckerman, and a lifelong friend of his, Rob Liss. And the four of them, they built a company that was one of the strongest and most successful in direct mail. Eventually, they get acquired. On October 31st in 2003, they get acquired by Gannett Company. On Halloween? They really sold on Halloween? Yeah, they sold on Halloween. I, I don't know if they drew it up that way, but um, Steve is going to share a, a really cool story uh, about that particular Halloween. Okay. Uh, to me, the, the interesting part, the fascinating is they sell this company. They, they put their heart and soul in for 20 years, and then they stay on for 10 more years working with a lot of the people that they had led, you know, as they, as they grew the company and, you know, people are going to get a glimpse into the mind of Steve Zuckerman today. And, you know, I work with him, as we said, for a long time right. and, and just a fascinating individual. I mean, so analytical, the way his mind would process information and come up with solutions. I've never worked with anyone like that. 
And the unique part to me was along with the analytical mind and, and understanding business the way he did, he was also to such an inspirational leader. Um, I mean, his group of people over the years, they would absolutely run through a brick wall for him. I believe it. Yeah. yeah. And, and the funny part, if you pick up the phone now, years later, they'd be in their car ready to run through that brick wall for him again. And you just don't see that every day. Now I can think of a few people you've worked with that would do that now. Absolutely. With no hesitation. Exactly. And, and their spouses wouldn't care. They'd be gas it up and get going. They'd be going with them too. Yeah, you know, that's just, and, and that's what's so unique. And, and hopefully our listeners will get a sense of that today. Um, they're going to hear really, I think, why Clipper Magazine became the company that it did. And, uh, you know, Gannett had it for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. They were then acquired by Velasquez Communications. Velasquez has it today. Um, but I think learning how this company got started and the fundamentals that made it, I think is going to make a, a great listen. Okay, Lynn, let's listen. Let's listen. So we are here today. Joining us on the podcast is Steve Zuckerman. Steve was president and founder of Clipper Magazine. And, and Steve, there, there's so many things I want to talk about today. So I, I want to jump right in. Is that good? Yep. Uh, so Glad to be here, Tom. Fantastic. And, and I really appreciate your time today. I want to go back to 1983. And that, that's hard for me to remember, but, I, but I'm hoping you have some good recollections. Um, I think it's right about 1983 where you're launching Clipper. At, you're at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. H how did the coupon Clipper get started? Um, it got started with a very simple idea. Um, I had I'd been a junior um, I, was, I was a first semester junior at FNM, Franklin and Marshall in Lancaster, and I was going to get a part-time job on campus and uh, try, didn't, didn't want to use all my summer money <laughs> ready from working and uh, wanted to make a little bit of money. And uh, so, so I was going to seek some employment uh, on campus. And I just came up with this idea. I think to this day, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it came from it was around the time the Sunday inserts were coming out of the newspaper, those coupons that come into the Sunday paper. Um, I think I saw a newspaper and said, why couldn't this be done on a local level? And, uh, for, you know, we, we all have all the crazy ideas uh, all the time and we forget about them five minutes later. For some reason, to this day, I don't know, I followed up on the idea and I uh, made a little prototype. Um, I was always a little bit creative, um, but, but I made a little prototype. Um, went went to the, uh, the, the the there was a gra a woman who did all the graphics at the school got a little help from her um, she she helped me with press type back then before all the computers um, where you actually little you actually rubbed and pressed the type and that's how I created the logo so created a little prototype um, calculated that if I could get uh, eighteen stores I made eighteen little slots on an eleven by seventeen piece of paper. Uh, uh, four pages and calculated that if I can get $50 a slot um, for, from different businesses around the college, put coupons in it. And I went to the post office at the school and said I could distribute them to the 2000 students. I could take in uh, $900 and it cost me, I don't remember the exact price, but it was between $100 and $200 to print. I went to the print shop at the school and they were very nice um, to me. And all of a sudden I was able to make myself six or $700 um, and I had a lot of fun talking to the different businesses around school, around the, the university or the school, not a university, and, uh, and, uh, and had fun creating it, made a few dollars, 
and uh, and it was very useful for the students because I went to all the places around the school that I that I went to, whether it was the pizza shop or the haircutting place or the local Burger King or the local sub shop. So um, I I I got coupons for places that students really enjoyed using. And I, and I guess that's kind of where understanding the consumer really got started with you, right? Because yeah. you're a student, you know where they want to go, what they want to eat and enjoy. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of got it started. But and I'm guessing it, it beats flipping burgers at McDonald's, right? You're, you're making yeah, it, your own hours and, and you're creating something. It did, it did for me. Yeah. And, get, and getting, you know, two bucks off the pizza was pretty good. <laughs> no, I couldn't use my own coupons. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you stayed away from that, though, right? <laughs> but but all your friends could. I'm sure you were, you were pretty popular on campus at that point if you had extra coupons. You just mentioned it, but a, a lot of those tenants that started, that started, um, in those first few weeks, re really were the basis for the company. Uh, create something, create something useful for the consumer uh, that they would really want to use. Uh, make sure, make sure um, that that it's created simply and easy to use. And and most important, um, by again, it, not even understanding publishing, but getting it into the mailboxes versus leaving it around uh, where people might pick it up. Taking the time to get it into two thousand mailboxes was making sure it actually got distributed to the students so they could use it. So between all those things, I mean, we, we, re we really followed those tenets th throughout, our, th throughout our, our 30 years of running the company. And I think that served us well competitively. So, so you, you published this first one, um, you're running around, you get 18 business owners to give you $50. That, that kind of investment, I'm sure, hey, this young guy's coming in, he's got an idea, you know, it, it, it's easy for them to say, all right, here, here's, you know, let me give it a try. Here's a coupon. Let's see. So, so what happened? Those last, those, I remember those last two ads were very hard to get. And I had a deadline to publish, so nothing changed. <laughs> no, there's, there, there was no remnant ads at that point, right? You just had to go and hustle, right? <laughs> so, so then what happened? So that it comes out, um, are business owners surprised with what they're seeing what what took it then to that next level where you know you're you're making a couple bucks on campus to saying you know this 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 might be a business since we only have an hour i'll keep the story short but basically it, it kind of worked and and uh we continue to do it again very very quickly my my brother and my freshman roommate joined me uh, again i'll keep the whole complicated story short um i was going to study abroad the next semester so ian was my roommate and he was my freshman roommate. I was, like I said, I was a junior. Um, he joined me in helping me um, as, as I was going to leave. Uh, we, we basically made a deal. He, he helped me put out the second and third book and then met me in Europe in the summer. And, the, and, and we, we split the money and then we traveled through Europe for the summer is, is what happened after I was studying abroad. And Bob had graduated from college um, and had started his own promotional item business. And so he... Um, so, so he uh, was doing that and then ended up joining us doing other schools. So we, we got out of school um, and, and, and actually, and let me speak of Rob. Rob, Rob Liss was another childhood buddy of mine who went into another different career um, into recruiting who ended up joining the company uh, about eight or nine years later. Um, but he was aware of the whole business because we, 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 were, we, were, we were best friends at the time. Um, and, and then ended up coming when we really started growing and recruiting. But back to the story, got out of school, um, was trying to figure out what to do, get a job, go to grad school. No, nobody was sure. And we all had different, um, 
different career goals. Ian wanted to be a lawyer. He was a gov major. I was a business major. Bob originally, even though he was in business, was a biology major. <laughs> um, Rob was an accounting major. And uh, so none of, none of us ended up going. I didn't hear any marketing or sales background. I was the only one in, ma in management. I was going to be an accounting major. I, and I, and, I, and I, I lasted about a course or two. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to generate the sales, not count the money. <laughs> um, and so we started doing it at, we graduated from school everybody was getting jobs. We looked at each other and said, we're having fun. And at this point we had put out a few, so we were making a little bit of money. We calculated we could make maybe, maybe not quite as much as getting a job, but something. And we were having a lot of fun, uh, essentially selling the ads. And at this, by this point, it's uh, about a year and a half later, we, we were doing a few college towns. Bob had opened up in Philadelphia. Um, we were still, we were, the sun, when I graduated from school, I did a book in Rutgers University um, in New Jersey. And the market research was my girlfriend at the time who became my wife lived right near there. So that became the spot to, to go. Went to Philadelphia because um, we had a fraternity brother who stayed his place. Ian ended up going to Washington, D.C. because we had another fraternity brother who stayed his place. That was our market research. So we started doing these magazines for college towns. And uh, we said, let's try this for a while. And uh, if, if we don't make it, um, we kind of knew our insurance was... Um, Mom lived in New York, and I knew I could get a meal and a roof over my head and figure out my life if it didn't work out. So kind of kept going. But I have to, but I have to ask you. Mom sent you to F and M to open up a coupon book, right? So is she pretty excited with with what you're doing at this point? He was, it, was, it was interesting. It wasn't just my mom, but every everybody was always supportive because I saw how much how passionate we were about it. But I, I remember it was definitely, and this is one of those lessons where you have to follow your passion. We we're having fun and making a little bit of money. What could be, what could be better than that when you're thinking about a career, especially the fun part? Um, but, you know, coming out of, coming out of F&M where most of the kids were going on to professional careers, again, doctors, lawyers, Wall Street, marketing professionals, and, and many others, um, I remember kind of people would, I'd run into friends to be like, you still doing that coupon thing? Or you're, you know, it felt like a campus, little campus project. They would call it a project. They assumed you were project. just going to grow out of it at some point, right? right? And so I'd bump into people. And, and for a lot of years, while the company was still very small and we barely had an office, if anything, it, I kind of was wondering, what am I doing? Am I ever going to kind of grow up and get a real life um, or become an adult? And that, that, that persisted for many years until also the company got bigger and, and then it became more professional, but, but kept doing it because again, we, we were, we were having fun and supporting ourselves. Now, at some point you, you have to be transitioning from the business owners doing a $50 investment to, to some larger investments with you. So a couple of young guys running around in advertising and marketing, what was the reaction? How are you getting business owners that are maybe second and third generation business owners understanding that, that you're going to help them market their business? Well, it happened very gradually. We started focusing on, uh, again, do, do what you know is the, is the other lesson. Um, we started focusing on college towns in the beginning because we were college students. And then it kind of dawned on us, um, there's a world outside. When you're, when you're in college, you don't think... Um, or, or in any school, you kind of think that's your whole, uh, the whole world is like that. <laughs> um, then it started dawning us, there's a whole world that, that, that uh, does home improvement or, you know, or actually cleans a house or <laughs> takes care of a lawn and all these things that you don't think about when, when, when you're, when you, on average, when you're 21 years old. 
Um, so we realized there's a whole other market besides college students after a couple of years. This might have been by about two to three years later as we were graduating in 85 by 86, 87, we're like, there's a whole other world out here. So that's when we discovered if we could, if we could um, distribute the magazine to homes versus college students, it would be less seasonal because college students are obviously seasonal by semester and we could do it all year round. So if we get a customer, we, we might, might be able to get them six or seven or eight times a year versus twice a year um, or maybe four times if we would get lucky. So, so we realized we could, we could, um, do more business with a customer and then also our market would open up from 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 restaurants and sneakers and ice cream and things like that and haircuts to to all of a sudden furniture stores or or cleaning places or, or other things that real adults did and so we transitioned into again i'll keep the story short but we transitioned into direct mail we discovered um again back to the original tenants of if we can get this and and, and when we were dealing with college students we took a lot of um, time to make sure it was a lot, lot harder in a lot of universities to make sure books or magazines got into students' hands. If we had to stand in the middle of the street for hours and hours and hours and hours um, and make sure they got into the hands directly, that's what we did. Um, we'd go through bookstores, we'd figure out any which way that we can get into that we can get into um, college, uh, in, into the college kids, which is why I knew, um, funny story, I remember my, my wife, girlfriend I was talking about, on one of our first dates, don't ask, I get reminded of this all the time, I asked her <laughs> to, to stand in the middle of Lancaster <laughs> and give out magazines with me. And I saw she was willing to do that. <laughs> this is what we were still doing. So I said, ah, that's the woman I have to marry. <laughs> that's a keeper at that point. Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many others would have run. <laughs> Maybe mm -hmm. she wonders if she should have run. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And so, so we started mailing to homes is really and, trans and transitioned okay. into doing that again. And, with, and that with had to be a, a huge investment, right? So that that had yeah, to be. We, we spent more. One of the things that we always did is we wanted to stand out. And at that point, um, the world was uh, penny savers, maybe some envelopes, maybe newspaper ads. So one, we, we always introduced color photos. Um, we introduced, again, now technology is so advanced, but back then having a, uh, a slick magazine. So the, the texture of time magazine was expensive, being able to do tons of color photos, being able to do the creative for a business to really communicate what that business was about with nice photos made the advertisers happy and spending the money to direct mail them into homes as opposed to the cheaper way of leaving them around and hope to get response um, where, where you kind of know how the throwaway magazines just much less distribution cheaper to distribute but paying for each one expensive so so we we kind of um, we kind of if you want to equate it to a restaurant use the highest quality ingredients and 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 did as much as we could to make sure our advertising was effective that made us have to sell a lot. Um, our prices couldn't be bargain basement, and we had to sell a lot of volume to cover those fixed costs. And uh, and luckily, um, the founders we were all salespeople, and we believed very much in the quality of our product, um, as you did, Tom, coming early to the company. And we saw that the businesses were willing to invest a little bit more um, to get something that was created as beautifully as we could. Um, communicate their business properly, made sure it got in the homes, um, reliable, rarely ever missed a deadline. I mean, we, 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 it just wasn't, it wasn't an option, like, kind of like a newspaper. We couldn't, if it had to come out, it had to be out. So we had to pick the right vendors that were, that were critical, that, that wouldn't disappoint us in any way, which means you had to pay more for that. And so, so we kind of put the, the whole thing oozed of quality.
and results. And that and, permeated in the culture. And I think it's really interesting because as you started to say, that was not the norm at that point, right? There weren't a lot of companies doing full color like you were at that point. Uh, I remember when I started, you you were mailing to more homes than, than any of the competitors that we dealt with. It was always about giving them that experience and, and getting them those results. So so how are you learning that? Because I'm assuming you're out there selling every day. You're, you're, you're doing the production on this and you've got to be learning on the fly, right? It's the easy way is, okay, this is the way everybody else does it. So let's just duplicate what they're doing, but, but you're doing it at, in a different level. So how, how does that get started? Um, Cause I think a lot of people don't do that. I was a young kid and if I could have, and, and, and I always respected, it came from an entrepreneurial family. So I always respected a business owner. So if one, it's so hard in sales to get in front of somebody. That's the hardest part. It's, it's usually never price. It's usually not even competition. It's getting somebody's attention, as we all know, even harder in the digital age. So if I, if I had built a personal relationship with somebody and I had sold them an ad, um, whether they were spending $100 or $1,000 or $10,000, when I met them a few weeks later, you could tell in their eyes whether they were happy with their investment. And uh, so I had to face that person again. And so it wasn't just about kind of grabbing money or making a sale. That was a relationship. And so... I wanted to do as much as possible, as much as possible and give them as much as possible. Um, so that when, when, uh, when I would see them a few weeks later, they would be happy to see me. That's number one. So, so naturally just over deliver, over deliver, over deliver. Um, as long as you can still make a profit. And like I said, it's the kind of business where the fixed costs are high, but one, if, if you have a super quality product and you, and you're willing to do the work to sell more of it, you could still make a profit margin. Never as good as that first magazine. <laughs> I always say those are that's the highest profit margin I ever made. <laughs> much, much, much higher than I ever made. Um, I guess that's probably what attracted me into the business. The other thing is, um, like you, you'd mentioned this, besides having normal teenage jobs, I never worked at a company. I never, I never um, knew how publishing companies work. Didn't know how the publishing technology worked at the time. So sometimes, and you see that with a lot of tech companies today, you can dream. And, um, and, 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 and if you're 21 years old, or I was 19 when I started, I had no preconceived notions of, of how a company should work and what I could do or, or not do. Um, and this served me well in, in, I just used common sense. If I can build something for a dollar and sell it for $1.50 or $2 and make a profit and service everybody, and, and, and it's a better product, who cares if I could build it for 80 cents or 70 cents, if I could build it for a dollar and still make a profit by hustling, why wouldn't I do it? So I did. I never looked at how other companies work. And Tom, you know this from uh, an employee level and culture level. Um, we tended, we tended to, and this grew from when we were a few people to, to as many as about fifteen hundred. Um, we tended to to try as hard as we could to treat everybody as nicely as possible financially, and even more and more important financially, uh, trust, and more important even than trust, respect. Um, I don't know. If, it's more important than trust, but trust and respect, the most important things. That's how you keep people through good times and bad. And that just happened as a natural um, offshoot of, of how we wanted to be treated. So it wasn't, it wasn't when I, as I learned and the company grew and heard from people that joined us, what companies did to folks and uh, I can argue what they got away with. I, I, I was stunned because uh, we kind of lived by the golden rule, the way we were raised uh, really from our, I guess, from our parents. And, uh, and I think that helped us build a culture 
uh, treating people the way we wanted to treat do it the way they wanted to be treated, which is why we rarely had a lot of turnover from people that 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 could do the job. Um, so, so between kind of an ignorance of not knowing what you get away with as a company, not having profit pressures, um, never being in an organization and just treating people the way you want to be treated. I think we accidentally uh, ended up creating a powerhouse and a, and, a, and, a, and a great culture in the company, at least from my perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I think you talk to almost anyone you talk to that had experience with Clipper. That's, that's the one word that they always go back to is, is the culture. And, and what it felt like doing it there. And, um, you know, to me, I always saw it as, as very inspiring. You know, people get excited. They, when, you, when you look back and you look at generals, you know, who are the, who are the generals that are, are people just think about and talk about, you know, centuries later, they, they inspired people to, to run through a brick wall for them. And, and I think that was built there because of the, that trust and respect and the way you did things. But that's not easy, right? So, you know, you, you've got your, your brother and a partner and, and you mentioned Rob, you've got a few close-knit people that you're working on to scale like you did and grow that company. Now now you had to have a lot of other people involved. Um, how did you keep that same culture growing? How, how did you find those people and, and, and how did you ensure that they were doing things in, in that same mindset? Um, some of it was luck, some of it's luck and, uh, and I think one, we, we set an example from the beginning that if you're going to join our company and be a leader, uh, you have to follow a lot of, I, and I think we just did it naturally, you have to follow a lot of those principles. Doesn't mean we all saw the world the same way. We're, we're all different people, come from different places, but a, a culture of sales, a culture of kind of being out front and getting it done, um, not a culture of leading from behind and, and, and just quotas and, and rules. It's easy. If you could set up rules and run a company, um, why wouldn't you do that? Set a computer program, let it run. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people saw that we were accessible. We would try stuff. We, we, we were always selling out front, trying to bring in enough money out of necessity to pay for all the mistakes. You're not always going to run across the right people and have problems. One, one interesting thing happened, uh, which is an interesting story to help fuel our growth. Um, when we were in business for about three, four years, um, maybe 87 or 88, maybe five years, um, something happened, something happened that I think really propelled our growth. Um, the, the, um, excuse me, the, we, we, we had had four or five magazines, maybe one in Harrisburg, one in New York, one in Lancaster, maybe some of the school publications. And we were in our early, early to mid twenties. Um, we, we had a competitor come copy us. It was, uh, three, uh, pay, gentlemen, um, in their thirties, which at that time seemed, seemed much more senior than are. They were senior executives in a, in the yellow pages business. They basically saw what we were doing. They copied us. They left the yellow pages. Um, and they opened up like 12 magazines all around us and tried to copy all our ideas right in and around where, where you're publishing okay. except lancaster they opened up i believe in harrisburg lebanon allentown reading whatever and we saw and, and we were scared because we were kind of going along doing our thing and we were we and these gentlemen were were 10 15 years our senior so we presumed a lot more experienced and uh and and basically started to compete with us kind of cut the prices in half. We didn't understand how it was getting done. And that's a lot of times what competitors do mm-hmm. and open up all around us and uh, basically trying to pick us off. And we made a decision at that time and that forced us to get out of our, this is one of the things you have to do in a company, force us to get out of our comfort zone. And we may never have gotten out of our comfort zone and grown if this wouldn't have happened. So it's a good lesson when you're going through adversity 
and we all know this, but it's, and we can all reflect back on our life. Most of the time, not always, the old, if it doesn't kill you, make you stronger. Um, you, you, what you get through and you learn a lot, it prepares you for the next challenge in life. So we barely had the money. We opened up like 10, 12 magazines, opened up in Allentown and in Reading and Lebanon. Um, I think maybe Chester County, I don't know, wherever they were, kept our own. And we're running a million miles an hour, like being, a, being in a car, being a little out of control, hired people. We didn't know if we were qualified to hire people, paying people. And we came across some unbelievable executives that, 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 that some are still with the company today, uh, 35 years later, uh, that, that we never, never would have joined us and, uh, and paid people more than we were earning, which is an interesting thing. So, so you kind of check your ego out the door because and 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 calculated that if if these folks that we were paying to run these magazines um, with and for us if they brought in enough money it would kind of hopefully cover their cover cover what part of what we were paying them so calculated okay, risk right. again very hard to do when you're not earning the money yourself so I had to invest everything into the company um, had to be out of control and we ended up uh, basically they fell apart after about a year and a half because um, they were a copycat. And they were all they were doing was cutting price, and that's not sustainable. So, so they went big, didn't have the base behind them, didn't have didn't have the uh, the, the culture, didn't have the passion, and uh, and they fell apart. And that made us feel comfortable. One investing, investing more than we were comfortable with, and this is all private money, not not public or taking investor money, um, putting it everything on the line, and also operating a little out of control. And we kind of kept that pace for 25, 30 years, um, or at least 20 years until we sold it, kept it for the whole time. We kept growing. So once we got comfortable with that and we saw we could survive, we were going to make a bunch of mistakes, but survive and succeed more than we failed. We basically, so maybe then we were up to 10 or 15 markets as opposed to five. Um, and then, and then we saw we were comfortable doing that. So we said, let's keep going. And we basically grew in, in kind of an uncomfortable fashion. For the for up, up until not that many years ago, grew in an uncomfortable fashion, meaning quicker, more investment, more people, um, for the rest of our for the rest of our uh, careers or for the rest of the growth of the business. So uh, something that that seemed seemed crushing at the time ended up being uh, one of the best things that happened to us. Never would have gotten to that gear. So so I guess if if you already hadn't known this this was a a business, this was going to be you're going to be here for the long term. After you dealt with that competitor, now you're expanding. This this thing is really real. You know, you're you're growing, you're investing, you're moving forward. Um, was there one big sale or or a, any other type of turning event that uh, that really kind of propelled you for those next ten years? Um, yeah, I, I would say a few. If I had to think back, one these were these were more. Uh, we were always we were always struggling for. I'll give you one that that felt good, and then one business wise was great. Um, I can actually think of two that felt. There, there's a ton of them as I start to think back. But we were always struggling for acceptance because we we basically, for the most part, created our own media. There were very few people doing this, um, especially the way we were thinking about it um, in terms of making it um, something that some it was advertising and coupons, but something that people would want to read. Um, we always crave to be accepted. And, and if you think back then, before there was digital, it was radio, TV, newspaper, billboards, maybe, um, and magazines. 
and we were kind of neither. So, so we, we were this outlier of, of a media. And, uh, and I remember we ended up somehow getting NBC uh, to promote. It was when Oprah Winfrey was coming back to NBC. And this is the Lancaster book, Our Pride and Joy, um, where, where it was always a big business with lots of advertisers. We were able to get Oprah on the cover and an NBC logo on the cover because she was coming back from NBC, I think from CBS. This was maybe in the early 90s. And uh, it all of a sudden, it, it all of a sudden felt like it legitimized us, like we were a real magazine being read. You have to think back to those days. Mm-hmm. And then I also remember, um, you, you think of, the, you, you kind of remember these clearly, um, getting one of the, uh, getting the best restaurant in Lancaster. It was called the Log Cabin at the time. It still exists um, in our magazine for full page. And that basically set the tone, because again, remember, it's a coupon book. That set the tone that any business, and this was fancy, fancy restaurant. You only went on anniversaries and that type of thing. Um, the fact that they were willing to go in our magazine um, and we did a beautiful ad for them, it kind of made us feel like we were accepted by the community. So those, those were more kind of coming of age customers. What what the, the customers that really propelled our business, I remember we got a call. Our, our distribution might have been $7 million at the time. So we weren't small um, and we were in a few markets and didn't think about national advertising. And we got a call from somebody in New York who, you remember those check ads that used to run where, where you'd see them in all the magazines where people could mm-hmm. order checks. We, right. we got a call from somebody that wanted to run an ad in every single magazine for, for, uh, to, 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 so you can order checks. And uh, we started calculating, it was gonna be too expensive for them if they had to buy the price for each magazine. But we figured out that we could print 7 million of, of one sheet of paper, essentially I'll oversimplify it, and put it in the magazine. And, and there was such efficiency with printing 7 million from 50,000 that we could charge, I don't remember, it was, it was probably between a quarter and, and a half, maybe it was like a third of what the price was, even less, I think. And, um, and so as a result of that, um, we, we were, and, and still make a profit. And it was fairly simple. Imagine selling one ad versus, you know, we normally sell an ad for $500 or a thousand dollars. We would sell one ad that would go into, that would go into a uh, hundred magazines. Right. We like, wow, this is unbelievable. Um, I might have the numbers a little off. It's been 30 years, but, but, um, the, the I think the result was like a, a $50,000 sale with one person rather than if you think about it, a hundred different little sales. And that really got us thinking uh, differently on a national level. And to this day, um, we, we ended up generating uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars of national advertising. We had done it also regionally as well, where somebody could buy, we called something, this was the first thing, the Philly million. There also like somebody can go into a million homes. Um, but the national one was unbelievable, where, where where all of a sudden we could deal with a Citibank who might spend a million dollars with us. Um, we, we, we didn't think like that. You're coming from 10 years earlier selling $500 ads. So, so it really propelled us into another level. So in a sense, what we ended up building was think about it as a TV network. We were the local NBC affiliate. We were the regional and we were the national affiliate all, all within one company. And so, so we, we accidentally created an, an unbelievable uh, business model. There weren't many people doing it that way then. You, you had your national competitors, 
you had your local competitors, but there were very few that, that could offer that. But to me, it goes back to, you were talking a few minutes ago about how you were growing the business and, and being very nimble. You had a model, but, but you changed a lot over the years as things came up. You know, so some people may have looked and said to that check cashing company, yeah, I'm sorry, we, we can't do that. You know, that we, right. that's not what we do. Um, but you were always, you know, kind of thinking ahead and looking at those opportunities and, and went through a lot of changes over a, a 25 year period. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Many ideas, many ideas didn't work. Uh, many ideas worked a little bit, but um, we, and, and we, we always try to, um, it was so hard to get clients. We just wanted to figure out the best way uh, and get clients to stay with you and provide long-term value, especially in a competitive advertising landscape that, that if we could figure out a way to service a client and it made sense for, for both us and them, um, there was a culture that we would do whatever we can to try to, uh, to tr tr try to keep that going. And then, and then once we had scale, um, once we had scale and had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sales people and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on the inside to execute and, and had relationships with vendors, um, very high quality national vendors, printers. If you think about it, our two main vendors were our printers and, and in a sense, the U.S. Postal Service. So once we had great vendors, which another good lesson of businesses, you, you have to have strategic vendors um, that, that, that are willing to help you and innovate with you. So, so we had buying power, um, we had scale and trust with our vendors. We kept the same vendors um, for, 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 for decades um, that they knew us and we knew them. Um, and that alone is a, is a t testament to a growing business when you can build that kind of relationship um, so they understood us through thick and thin in a very in a very um, difficult business. Again, you had weekly deadlines. There were times there was 150 magazines going out with, with all different inserts and pages and page counts and a lot of variables uh, going out logistically, trucking, getting to the post offices, getting printed, paper coming in. Um, we, 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 there were times we'd have 150 or more magazines going out on a weekly basis. So when, when we think of the logistical machine that we built all, all kind of um, level by level slowly um, with, with the folks that could execute that and that understood it um, from our own employees to our vendors it, it, it was um, it was an unbelievable thing that happened in, in a very natural way I don't think I even appreciated um, when I was you know sometimes when you're in the middle of the war um, the, the 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 amount of great relate I always appreciated but I don't think I know the level of unbelievable now that i'm gone um the the from the company the, the amount of unbelievable relationships we had um at, at all levels throughout the company and, and and that was vital right looking back now you realize how how important that was and 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 what that meant but i want to go back because you're you're you talked about a lot of different types of media um Print was was starting and it was it was coming into its own in the mid '80s as you're doing what you're doing. Print is still very effective now. It's gone through a lot of change. What was it about the the way you did the ads? What was it about Clipper Magazine or the type of print that you did that made it so successful? Because I I know from my days, business owners once they were in the program and doing it, um, they were getting really good results. So what what created all that? Um. I, I touched on this before, but print was the vehicle. Um, I think we also had a culture 
as I touched upon, whether it was the right photographs, the right message, you could put something on a piece of paper. Um, but I think that the programming, we worked as hard to, we worked as hard to get the right things into the magazine. So, so I, I think a lot of it was um, the content and using the print effectively no different than you could put anything online today, but but if it's not if if it's not the right video, if it's not done right, the right timing, format, attention grabbing, keeping your eyeballs, it's all about keeping somebody's attention. Um, and and I so I think we I think we because we had to. I mean, we were judged by we were judged we were a direct response mechanism. So if you handed us money a couple like I said a couple weeks later, you expected a response. It wasn't just brand building. The brand building and the image making and all the other things were taken for granted. Um, it, 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 at the end of the day, you expected a response. And so we had to leverage print in a very effective way to make sure we can keep our customers. And, and by doing that, um, by doing that as a necessity, I think we, we used print correctly. I mean, didn't take it for granted. Our, our, I always say our advertisers were our editorial. That's what would get somebody to open up the magazine. It's still true today of any of any media, really. And I'm shocked that I was shocked over the years at how many people spent um, many millions of dollars negotiating a contract, um, doing the work, figuring everything out, and spent so little time on the actual content of what they were running. And usually, usually it was out of either not understanding or, or worse, sometimes laziness um, or, or or bureaucracy. So I think we used print effectively. Hey listeners, it's Kelly Bloomer here to tell you the show is brought to you by Bloomer Associates. If you visit our website found in your show notes, you'll find we offer sales training, talent assessment for hiring and team development, and individual coaching for sales pros and managers. We bring over 30 years in media sales and leadership experience. If you enjoy listening to OK Boomer, Teach Me Sales, ask how our team can work with your sales team for virtual meetings, roundtables, and motivational seminars. You can contact us through our website or call today, 919-267-9871. Now back to our show. Let's talk now. So you're you're 20 some years in. Yep, sorry. Um, you're, you're going to sell to one of the largest media companies in the country. What, what was going through your head? What, what was that? that? This is your baby. This is so much passion, so much energy. Um, what, what were you thinking at that point? And, and uh, looking back, how did that work out? Um, like everything else, I don't think I completely planned on it. I think there were some converging influences that, 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 that led to the sale of our company. Um, number one, the company was getting pretty large. I mean, I touched on this before. Um, we, we had been on this uh, race car driving 90 miles an hour, investing every dollar and staying on the rails uh, for 20 years now. Um, and, and we're okay with it, but, but we're living with a high degree of risk because as you know, in any business, anything could happen from competition to technology as, as did to economy. A pandemic. Um, the yeah. pandemic. Um, and now we were a, a, a group of a thousand people. So we kind of had that in the back of our minds um, every, you know, while we were doing things. And, and somebody contacted us, um, somebody basically contacted us about, uh, and we'd always received inquiries, but, but somebody serious kind of contacted us 
about potentially uh, selling our company to Gannett, an investment banker. And uh, we, we, I remember at first we were almost scared. We, we, we always had this attitude of laying low. We barely wanted the big media companies to pay attention to us because we were kind of just a little coupon book. And uh, we, we were very, one of the good things kind of going back at, about our company is, is no, none of us had really have or had tremendous egos for the company we built. So we didn't do fancy articles. We, we, were, we were this kind of American entrepreneur success story, but you read very, very little about us. And, and, and that was done on purpose because if you're in business, um, if you're in business and uh, you, you, you feel like you have a good formula, uh, kind of the dumbest thing you could do is start telling everybody your formula. Why would you do that? It's just going to breed competition. So our attitude, and eventually we couldn't, it got so big, but our attitude was kind of lay low, lay low and shut up. Um, mm -hmm. As I always say this, uh, it was Bob's father-in-law who, who was a seasoned business businessman who, who, who once gave Bob the advice that business is like war and the more foxholes you stick your head out of, the more chance you have of getting shot. So our attitude was kind of shut up and lay low. And, the, and because we were a coupon book, not, not a fancy, not a TV commercial or a radio, again, it was a detriment because we didn't have the glamour part of it um, or the mainstream media part of it. Because it was a coupon book, we maybe weren't uh, as respected as a real media because um, we weren't really a magazine. We were a coupon. We, we were this hybrid product, um, which I'll get to in a second of another reason why we Created sold. Created your own niche there. Yeah. Created our own niche. Um, it, people didn't pay much attention to us. And they didn't realize how much business we were doing. The, the big media companies didn't really quite realize how much business we were doing in a, in a major market. We could be doing $10 million worth of business. And they kind of just didn't put it together on a large scale or pay attention. In fact, most of our competition ultimately came from a lot of small folks that saw what we were doing that tried to copy us less, less than the bigger companies. Um, the, the, uh, the, so getting back to the story, they, they, they approached us um, and we listened and saw it was real. And because, as I was saying earlier, we weren't a real media, so to speak, radio, TV, newspaper, billboard. I always thought if we ever had a desire to sell our company, um, it may be difficult because if, you, if you're a newspaper, maybe not as much, well, even today, if you're a newspaper or a billboard or a radio station, there's a market for that. It's like a piece of real estate. You put it on the market, it has a certain multiple, it has a certain value that's kind of known, and you can find somebody to buy it, a little higher, a little lower in price. We were such a hybrid, if nobody really paid attention to us, and we were so big, it wasn't like a little person could buy us, it had to be a, a pretty large company. Um, I didn't know we'd ever get paid attention to again. And all of a sudden, a Gannett, one of the largest newspaper companies, the largest newspaper company in the world, multi-billion dollar company, had kind of focused on us. And, and they were willing to pay a reasonable multiple. And like I said earlier, we're all of a sudden about a thousand people. It kind of felt like maybe it'd be a time to have a, a big brother. So, so that, because we were now in the big leagues and we were swimming in, in more shark infested waters, we were becoming big. So the combination of um, one, having everything on the line for 20 years and, and uh, you know, barely a raise in salary, just taking enough money to make a living, even though the company was growing by tens and tens of millions of dollars a year because we needed every dollar in the company. Combination of being a little more afraid that, that, that uh, here we are, the, you know, the students um, were, were all of a sudden playing in the big leagues. The combination of big trusted blue chip company, multi-billion dollar big brother um, being on our side, uh, that felt good. And then the deal we also made with them is they had really no interest because it wasn't 
they, they were in media, they were in newspaper and TV and other media, but they really weren't in our little world. They weren't going to be inserting executives and trying to run it or get absorbed into their network. We were kind of operating as an island and, and kind of the deal we made is they're going to leave us alone and not put a single executive in our company, which they honored until ultimately uh, we left. Um, so which, it allowed us to- an, an additional 10 years, which is yeah, pretty, pretty our, miraculous. Yeah. Our contract was- uh, for, I think uh, we technically had to stay uh, for 18 months. We stayed 10 years because we enjoyed what we were doing. Again, I was only 39 at the time. So here, here we were able to kind of, to kind of um, have, have a safe, successful exit, be connected to a much larger company um, as, as we got into, to, again, more shark infested waters as we got bigger and, uh, and kind of had a little bit of the best of both worlds. And, and that's kind of why we ended up selling the, the company. Okay. Great, great story for, for companies that are going through anything like that to, to look and, and to see how you did that. And, and like I said, to me, staying those additional 10 years, um, you know, that showed the passion that you always had early on. You know, it, it wasn't over. You, you could have been done after those 18 months, but you weren't. There were still some things you wanted to accomplish and to do. Um, I, I, you just remind me, you'll, you'll appreciate this story. Uh, people always ask us, what did you do when, you know, it's the entrepreneur's dream to sell their company. What did you do when you sold your company? Um, we closed on the company after six months of negotiations on Halloween, uh, 2003. And uh, so you'd think after, you know, finally until, until the money hits your bank account and the wire comes, the deal's not a deal. Like, like no different than selling a house. I think get very complex at the end. Um, again, all, and all stuff we didn't have a lot of experience with. So very scary when you, if you don't do it every day. You're not buying and selling companies. It was the only time we ever did it in our lives. But we, we consummated the transaction and it was about two, three o'clock. And we were almost like numb because it gets really crazy at the end. The lawyers and the investment bankers and the communication. And it, it ended up being about three o'clock. We're all sitting there just kind of exhausted from what we went through, um, meaning our partners. It's October 31st. And uh, you'd think you would, you know, crack open the champagne or go out for drinks or do something. Our, we all had little kids at the time, um, all, all call it 10 years old or, or give or take. Um, all of our partners and everyone had three kids. And we get a call from our wives. It's three o'clock. You have to be home for trick-or-treating. And uh, this was the first of, uh, on October 31st. So we all like, oh, got to go. And we never really, and then we went back to work on Monday. In fact, for the first time in our lives, we had bosses. We felt like we had to go back to work on Monday because we sold our company. So everybody asked, what did you do when you sold your company? It was, I ran out and, and all of a sudden, I remember I'm trick-or-treating with, you know, with my little son's daughter and uh, kind of numb. And that was the first thing that we did. And then we had never ended up really completely celebrating because the weekend came and the moment passed and we were busy. So kind of a funny story of, yeah. of an entrepreneur selling their company. Yeah, I, I, I'm imagining that's not the uh, everyday normal story when that no. happens. There was no champagne <laughs> and no, no cork. But, uh, but to me, it seems like uh, a lot of your story through it all, you know, being very well grounded with what you were going through. Your, your priorities were, were um, aligned, it sounds like, back before you even started college, you know, with the, and that's what built that culture and, and did what you did there. Um, let's talk about today. So um, you've been helping small business owners, medium-sized, all kinds of business owners for a long time. 
Um, the, things have changed a little bit, but but they're still out there. People are opening up businesses every day. They still need to market. They still need to bring in new customers. Uh, is anything still the same? What's changed? Where, where do you see advertising and marketing going over the next few years? Um, it's, cle it's clear, um, and it took a while for it to happen because uh, while we were still at Clipper, the let's call it the digital revolution, whether you want to call it uh, email, search, social, and many other things uh, like that kind of started around the time we were, we were, we were uh, in the early, let's call it the early 2000s, five to 10 years after the internet kind of became prevalent. Um, everybody was trying to figure it out. And it really took about, I would say, till the 2010s uh, for, for, I think, I think the crash, uh, hastened things because the, the old business models weren't working anymore, um, as well as they were, um, and digital became much more accepted and developed, but, but basically, um, these days, all, all, all of the traditional media still, still working for different verticals and different types of businesses. Um, but digital has become so prevalent, I think, partially because it's so much less expensive to administer or, 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 or operate. Um, doesn't make it easy. It's, it's much more complicated because there's so many different methods in which in, in ways to hit a customer. Um, the old days, if you think about it, of building a brand where there were you know, three or four TV networks, um, it was almost simplistic. Um, if you put a brand out there and you had the right creative, you had the eyeballs. Like it's, again, media is all about catching eyeballs and having the right message where someone will will respond to it. Now mm -hmm. there's a hundred different places, um, especially with social media. Again, email. Go down all the all, all the things you look at in your everyday life. So it's so much more fragmented. So so again, the good news is it's a lot less expensive to 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 put it out there, comparing to printing something, trucking it somewhere, uh, postage. When you're talking about print. Um, or even if you're talking about TV or radio, if you think about it, anybody could do, we're doing a podcast right now. You're, you're in your home um, with some of the same power as a, as a radio station or a TV station. Um, it wasn't possible, barely possible 10 years ago. So everyone's their own TV network. Everyone has a way to communicate to everybody. It makes it much more complicated, but very fascinating if you could figure it out. Um, you, you, there, there's, there's unbelievable opportunities. So it's a completely new world of local media. And yes, local businesses still need to advertise um, and attract people. It's got to be so confusing for them, I would think, right now, Steve, because there are so many ways to do it. There are so many options for them. They can do certain things on their own. But I think it goes back to that quality that you were talking about early on. You know, you, you have to do it at a certain level to really get the results. You know, there's a lot of ways to get those eyeballs. It doesn't mean they're going, those eyeballs are going to see your, your ad um, if you're not using the right, the right vehicles. There's even more opportunities than ever for a business who could do it right, uh, because it, it is ever, ever so much more complex. Think about it as uh, from from how you used to be able to fix your car. Many many folks knew how to fix a bunch of stuff on an engine. Now you know there's computers running a car, so most people don't know how to do all that. It's more complex. So there's there's more opportunities um, in media because it it is complicated for a business owner or somebody or smaller business owner, um, which is always my passion more so than the bigger ones, uh, to be able to maneuver they, their way around the digital landscape. 
So, so, mm-hmm. so, I, so I think that for the right businesses that could, that could figure it out, that have the patience, the passion, um, there, there is more opportunity than ever. Very good. Um, and I know you got to go in a minute, but I, but I did want to ask you about, um, you were instrumental in um, Clipper Magazine Stadium, um, the Lancaster Barnstormers, um, in an area that you've been for so long, you're, you're so tied into the community. Um, h- how important is that to you? What, what kind of feeling is that with what you're doing there uh, for the local community with the, uh, you know, having minor league baseball there and being a part of that? We, we started out as a naming rights partner when the minor league stadium came to town. Again, like Lancaster, Lancaster has always been, Lancaster was a, a blessed place for me. Um, it's funny. I always tell F and M I, I found my wife, I found my business, I found my best friends. Um, so uh, when the development folks come knocking, <laughs> I, I can't, about, but the perfect candidate. You, you um, got to open the door and talk, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I couldn't have been more lucky to just end up in Lancaster and Lancaster as a town um, has grown and grown and grown. It, it was a much smaller place, a very rural place when I got there in, in, in 1981. And it's become somewhat of a, of a, of a bit of a cosmopolitan city and, and growing and, and, it, and it's, and it's a bit of a paradise. So, so when baseball naturally came in 2005, uh, with with all of our roots in the town, we we wanted to be part of it. Um, and the stadium, not so much just from the sports aspect, but but a stadium is a is a central place where where the local community, the business community, um, it, it's a place where people could gather um, and and almost always for for good times. And we wanted to be involved with that. Um, through a long story, we ended up taking over the team. Um, at first, we were, we were just sponsors, but we ended up taking over the team and, uh, and, and really as a give back to the Lancaster community and, uh, and, and kind of fun because it's a, a stadium is marketing. It's a, it's a lot of what we do. It allowed us to be very much involved with the community and allowed us to, to, to use our marketing skills and kind of do something, do, do something that's, that's a lot of fun. And, and it's, it's worked out well. It's given, it's given us a platform in, in which to uh, be involved in the community. If you think about it with Clipper, we grew while we had a Lancaster magazine. Early on, we grew outside of Lancaster. So as we got bigger and bigger, maybe 2% of our business was in Lancaster. So we weren't, at, we, had a, we had a ton of employees in Lancaster. So we were involved in the community and, and we knew a lot of the retailers, but we weren't deeply as a business involved in the professional community um, the exception of our vendors and our banker and lawyer and other folks, but, but we weren't deeply involved in the community as, um, as, as you would have thought for being a large company. Cause like I said, 98% of our business was done across the United States and not in Lancaster. As we had this business inside of the community, it was kind of neat to meet so many of the nonprofits and the professionals and all the different organizations that would be involved in, in, in the, in the stadium. So it's basically been a vehicle. It's basically been a, been a vehicle in which we could be involved, get back, do something cool for Lancaster to, to a city that's really, um, re- really been a, a blessing, blessing in our lives in, in, in so many ways and continues to be. And, and, uh, and we continue to live here um, um, and, and, and will for, for, because it's just such a wonderful place. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, and I, I can see not everybody on the uh, podcast right now can see your smile and 
and uh, the passion as you're talking about your hometown now, but um, you can obviously see it. You're, you're, um, it was good for Lancaster, and it was good for Steve Zuckerman, right? You, you were both blessed. Uh, that yeah, you yeah. Ended up going. Re- re- real special, magical, a real special, magical story is, is, what, is what the whole thing was, and you couldn't predict it. No. And, and as somebody who worked at Clipper for a long time, I, I, I'll end by telling you, to me, it's, it was magical for a lot of people um, to have an opportunity to, to work with you and, and the people at Clipper um, on behalf of thousands of not only consumers, businesses that, that your company helped over the years, but, but employees who, whose lives you really changed and impacted. Um, I think there were quite a few people that uh, were blessed to be a part of what you created um, back in the uh, back in college. It, it's just an amazing story. Like I said, when I think about it, it's 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 it almost doesn't feel like that that story happened. As you get further and further away from it, it, it feels like a story that, that I was just lucky to be part of. Uh, um, you, and you forget the everyday, like everything in life, you forget the everyday ups and downs. So it, it becomes more magical as time as time goes by, and especially when you think about all the, the the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people that we that we 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 had the, the privilege to be involved with. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it, was a, it was great to hear your story, and uh, we, we look forward to hearing more. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for letting me tell my story. Absolutely. So that's it. That's today's show. Okay, Boomer, teach me sales. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to subscribe and follow. We hope you make us a part of your week, and don't forget to share with your friends and coworkers. Should we mention the website? Sure, the website, okboomerteachmesales.com. And where can they engage with us? LinkedIn at Thomas J. Bloomer. We hope to see you there.